If you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23, I'll be reading verses 32 through 38. Luke 23, 32 through 38. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the King of the Jews. Father, I ask for the grace. It's a grace that was purchased on this cross to proclaim, to teach the Gospel, to handle Scripture as it should be handled, to grab from it the meaning that's in the text, and to say it and say it again. But may you move now in that by your Spirit, saving, sanctifying, bringing worship, adoration to you who now does sit on the throne to the glory of your name Amen (coughs) this is the twelfth sermon of the last twenty four hours of Jesus' life and now Pontius Pilate finally and cowardly gave in to his enemies the Jewish Sanhedrin. And by the time the soldiers were done administering that dreaded verberatio lashing, Jesus was half dead and in a state of shock. His back and his upper hamstrings strings are just ripped to shreds. And now with their job done. There's about 60 of these soldiers. They, instead of leading them right to the road, decided like many Nazi death camp guards to toy with their prisoner. Hey, look! Our boss wrote on his placard, King of the Jews! Go get that purple robe. 
Let's put that on him. And, you know, get, get a stick. A stick will work good for a king's scepter. And they're laughing. Some are coming before him, falling down in mockery. Hail, O oh great king, your majesty. A couple other guys get an idea. A king, not only a robe and a scepter, but he needs a crown. And so they grab from that bush with green little leaves and one inch long curvy sharp thorns and break it off and start to make a circle of it and tie it together and weave it to look like a crown and then they fitted it to Jesus' head and pressed it down as it busted through His skin and His nerves and came to rest on His bone of his skull and blood is now pouring down his face and he's barely able to stand and then the humiliation of all these guys dancing around him some slugging others spitting and continuing to mock great king great king and then they're done take the robe off him and put his own clothes back on him. It is now about 8.30 in the morning. And they force Jesus to pick up now this big five and a half foot long 70 pound wooden beam upon his shoulders with splinters in all. And along with the other two, they start marching through the city blocks with four executioners around each victim. And we saw last week that after blocks and blocks of Jesus stumbling from loss of blood and weakness, He can no longer carry that heavy beam. And that African Jew, Simon, coming through the gate is now forced to pick it up and carry it out the Ganath gate and another couple hundred yards to a small little hill called Golgotha, where there are already a bunch of vertical beams sticking up that are permanent there, planted in the ground for execution. So let's pick up where our text begins this morning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. Now this hill is probably only about 30 feet high. It's not that big. And from one of the walls, it's probably about 300 feet from the city wall of Jerusalem. Many of us can hit baseballs further than that. If you stood on that wall, you could look almost eye level right at what's happening and even hear what's happening right there in the execution site of Golgotha. The hill, according to Luke here, is called the skull, most likely because it resembled a human skull as it kind of protruded out of the ground. Now, of course, he doesn't speak English. He didn't say skull or write skull. He, he wrote the Greek word 
cranium. Hear it? Cranium. Cranium is where we get it from. Now, the Jews, though many of them spoke some Greek, like people do all over the world with English today, but their main language, if you're a Jew living in Palestine, was Aramaic. So they referred to the hill as a skull, but not in Greek, but in Aramaic, which is the word Golgotha. And, and that's why Matthew and Mark and John all, all tell us, quote, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, they just, in Greek, transliterated the Aramaic sounds, like we do with agape, we just say agape instead of love. And so they call it Golgotha, and then they all say, which means the place of the skull. And many of you know that throughout Western church history, starting when about 400 with Jerome's translation into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, which this was the main Bible of the Western church for the next thousand years, translated this Greek word, cranion, or skull, into the Latin, Calvaria. And thus we get our term, Calvary. So now when Jesus arrives there, He is offered some drugged wine, which would help with the pain. He doesn't take it. Mark just puts it this way. And they offered Him wine mixed with myrrh, but He did not take it. You're there, the soldiers tell Simon of Cyrene, okay, get out of here now. They take that big plank of wood and throw it down to the dirt and then they force Jesus down to the ground and they lay His upper torso, the back, upon that beam. They stretch out one of His arms and another soldier puts all his weight on that arm, on that beam, while another comes with the six-inch nail with a point on it and finds the place there in the wrist where they want it to go that's going to hold him and push it in and then bring the mallet down. And Jesus lets out a loud scream. The Romans figured out that in crucifixion that if they could put the nail right above the hand this way, there's a joint in there that's much stronger and will hold the body so it doesn't rip through and fall to the ground. So already now having one of his arms pinned to this plank, they get the other one and they stretch it out find the place, set it, and bring the mallet down. And as the shrieks of pain pierce the air, there are crowds of people watching and listening to all of this. Among them are His mother, His really good friend and apostle, John, Mary Magdalene, and another Mary who's actually John's mom, and James's mom, call her Mrs. Zebedee. And there are many other women and men who have traveled 
with Jesus from Galilee all the way up to Jerusalem over these last nine weeks. And then they watch as the soldiers grab the beam and stand Jesus up and they have to keep holding Him or He's going to fall over with a 70-pound thing tacked to His body and they slowly walk Him backwards to the vertical piece of wood that's about eight feet high. It's not that tall. Sticking out of the ground. And as He is now there, they lift Him up, two sides of the beam. Third guy grabs Him around the waist and they go up. The fourth guy is behind the vertical piece with a little ladder so he can help bring it in, that cross beam into the groove that's already carved in the vertical piece and plop it down in in Jesus' weight. Now, we'll hold it there. Just pause for a moment. When the Romans wanted those people they're executing to suffer for days, often many would be alive for days on a cross, make the suffering that much worse, they would tack a seat, a little piece of wood, where the body could sit and hold its weight, which would allow the person to get air into their lungs much easier. Thus, they would last longer and suffer Longer, But this day is Friday. It is the Sabbath when sun, the sun will go down. So these Roman soldiers know they don't want these three men to last longer than six or eight hours by this point. Because it's a Jewish law that these bodies must be down before sunset on the Sabbath. And so now Jesus hangs there. They come now and grab His legs and they bend His knees and they put one foot over the other and hold Him there as the other executioner comes with a six-inch spike and finds that joint where He wants it and pushes it in and then brings the mallet down a few times. And He lets out Another scream of pain. And then finally, they nail the sign of his crime above his head. Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so now with these soldiers, their, their physical work done, They had already stripped Jesus naked and they began to roll dice to see who's going to get His clothing and make some money off of it. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson describes it this way, Stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs 
to pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasms racked the entire body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. He doesn't have a loin cloth on. Prisoners were crucified totally naked in order to enhance the humiliation, the public shame. And so as Jesus hangs there, nude, on His journey of slow suffocation, He's got to fight His own body weight pushing up on the spikes in His foot pulling on the spikes in his hands to get air. And he goes up and down. Up and down. And as that's happening, Luke tells us in verse 34, and they cast lots for his garments. There were two main garments. There was the outer garment, the cloak, and there was the underwear, or the inner garment, the tunic. These four soldiers in charge of Jesus' execution rip the outer garment into four pieces along the seams. They all get a piece of the pie here. But when it came to the inner garment, they noticed, ooh, it's a whole piece. There's no seams here and it's worth a lot more money that way. Let's not devalue it. Let's cast lots for it. The, the Apostle John lets us know all this when he writes in John chapter 19, starting with verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And so there, Jesus hangs up and down. And and get the picture because I think most of the time in pictures and in dramatic scenes of the the thing. You, you picture Jesus way up there on a cross. No, He's right here. His feet are no more than two feet or three feet at the most off the ground. He's right in front of them. His head is probably about a foot higher than where my hand is. Right now, as the crowd looks at Him. And it's not just the crowd. It is for the next six hours, right there on the road, going into the gate of Jerusalem, tons of people coming and going, looking at this all day long. Then, the conquering religious leaders had their few hours of mocking this bloody mess pinned 
to a tree. See verse 35? And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, the Chosen One, and their taunt was an echo of Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, that was penned a thousand years earlier. And remember the significance of Psalm 22. This is the psalm, within a few hours now, Jesus will quote it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But down in verses 6 to 8, we read of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him and rescue Him. For He delights in Him. It's amazing. A thousand years before, almost to a T, what the leaders of Israel said to their God. And God will answer their ridicule in just a few days in a very shocking way. And it is ironic, isn't it, that these leaders seem to have admitted that Jesus was some type of a healer and a miracle worker. Look at how He's delivered all these other people. They, they ran into problems with that. How, how did you get your sight back? You were blind. I don't know. And the guy got frustrated. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. They know this guy is a troublemaker because of all these miracles and signs he's been doing. And they admit it here. And now use it for mockery. Save yourself, O King of Israel. You're the chosen one. See, the very fact that these Religious leaders succeeded in getting Jesus right here pinned to that piece, two pieces of wood. It was to them a settled issue. They're right. Because Deuteronomy 21-23 says, the law of Moses says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day because a hanged man is cursed by God. They knew it. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The Jews, they knew that you had to be a lunatic who knows nothing about Judaism. If you can look now at a crucified man and in any way consider him God's chosen Messiah. And so hanging there, bloody and naked, 
while gasping for air, it was the lowest humiliation imaginable. As Paul would later write in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, nature, He humbled Himself by being obedient to the point of death dot, 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 even death on a cross. Now, at this point, I want to filter in Matthew and Mark, which essentially say the same thing, so I'll quote it from Matthew in some of the more details they give us. In Matthew 27, starting with verse 39, he writes, And those who were passing by, lots of people all day long, derided Him. They they, they laughed at Him. Now here's Psalm 22 here. Wagging their heads (laughs) and saying, You who would destroy the temple (laughs) and rebuild it in three days, God, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And their heads keep wagging. And they go on. And so also chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if God desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. And then according to Luke, in verse 36, the Roman executioners get in on it. The soldiers also mocked Him, coming up and offering Him sour wine and saying, (laughs) they can see the sign above His head and they hear all this. Yeah, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Yeah, the sour wine is probably what these guys are drinking. It's sour wine as opposed to sweet wine. It's cheap. It's like old Boone's Farm or something. But what they're really doing is a brutal, savage humor at the very person who was planted in the womb of Mary about 35 to 38 years before this day. It is the very person who is God the Creator who became a human being. And so no wonder 
God the Holy Spirit has the prophet Isaiah cry out 700 years before this day saying about this day on Golgotha. For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. And we, we esteemed Him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs. And He's carried our sorrows. Yet, yet, we esteemed Him to be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet, all of this was the will of the Lord to crush Him. The Lord has put Him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. There is no salvation from the justice that we all deserve. There is no salvation from God's justice that every one of us sinners deserve except through this brutal, gory cross of Jesus from Nazareth. And so just picture yourself on that small little hill that day 
He's now way up. He's just right there. You can hear him breathing as you look at Jesus. And then look beyond his head to the wall of Jerusalem right there. And you can see the Temple Mount. And you can hear what's going on in the temple. You hear the bleating of sheep, and, and you hear bulls, you hear animals, thousands of them. And as you get that picture in your head, listen to what the Holy Spirit says through the writer to the Hebrews. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And because of that, when Christ came into the world, He said, the words of Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure And then I, Jesus, said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. This scene today is the Savior. And it is the way He saves. As Paul takes this message decades down the road to people who have not yet heard so they could hear and believe and be saved, he summarizes this salvation this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, those of you who believe are made right with God. You are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward on a cross as a propitiation in His blood to be received by heart, faith. That's what the words mean when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whosoever will believe in Him will not perish with their deserved guilt but will have eternal life. This scene is the Lamb of God who was slain, planned before the foundation of the world. Because here on that hill, He is purchasing eternal salvation for many. C.S. Lewis, he looked at this scene on Golgotha and wrote, He creates the universe already foreseen, or should we say, seeing. There are no tenses in God. 
already foreseen the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, and the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates His own parasites. He causes us to be so that we may exploit and take advantage of Him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. End quote. If you're paying attention, you know that I left out one line from our text that Jesus spoke from the cross. It's there in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the first of seven sayings of Jesus that we have recorded from the cross. Forgive them. Forgive who? We'll come back to that next week. But for now, notice the reason He says it. It's right there. Why He prays for the forgiveness. Because. That's what the word for means. Because. They don't know what they are doing. This is a type of ignorance, it seems, that the mercy of God can reach through and save and forgive and enlighten those sinners. And it also shows that Jesus did not come to save good people. But He came to save sinners who are guilty, who are under the wrath of God. And so this man, just right there, suffering torturous pain, that's been going on for a while, now can say, Father, forgive them. Because they do not understand what they're doing. And so there are some implications for every one of us. Particularly for every one of us 
who can say along with the Apostle Paul, though formerly, yes, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So let's think about three implications of Jesus' words from the cross as we close. Forgive them. First implication is this. Sin is a state that has plunged all of us into darkness and ignorance. And we sin. We sin in ignorance all the time. And though ignorance, and it does, lessens the guilt, then if you weren't as ignorant, it does not remove the guilt. The New Testament is clear on this as we read from Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so, they are without excuse. That fall of the human race is what has created within all of us the ability to crucify the very eternal Son of God. While in one sense, not consciously knowing that that's what we are doing. But that does not let any of us off the hook of God's justice. Sins of ignorance, whether it's a a tribe on the Amazon River who have never heard the Gospel, or whether it's an atheistic, anti-religious, American relativist, whatever they claim of ignorance, and there may be some truth in that grasping, They all need an atonement in order to provide forgiveness from God. What we all need is for Christ to say personally in a way that creates what it calls for. Father, forgive Him or her. Because of this 
cross. And that's why one crucial mark of a genuine conversion to Jesus Christ is a coming to grips with one's own depth of their sinfulness. And that's why it's so crucial to be like Paul. I would know nothing among you except the centerpiece. I'll never remove the centerpiece among you, church. Christ crucified. We're so desperate to constantly look at the Creator of the universe who became a human pinned to a couple pieces of wood. In order for people to come to saving faith in Christ, to this bloody Christ, one must first have their eyes open to the truth of his or her own sinfulness before the Holy Creator. And it is the life, the merciful life of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in new birth that creates in darkened hearts of ignorance a sensitivity to the Word of God. Where the Word of God becomes a mirror to our brokenness, our undeservedness, our sin, our need, as we hear and look upon the cross And thus, we then joyfully are driven to embrace Jesus. The one who for my sake and my salvation willingly laid down his life in such a manner. It's the first implication. He And I I don't get close to getting the reality of the graphicness of what actually happened. But it happened because of our sinfulness. The second implication when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is that it shows that God's love and mercy are deeper than any human being can imagine. In those words, Jesus was fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 53, verse 12, He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and He makes intercession for the transgressors. So here is the True high priest. Not these guys right over here. And this true high priest is right now in our text before the altar of God and not with the blood of animals. But He is now offering Himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice. And during this, not just in His ascension, He is already, already interceding on behalf of others for their 
forgiveness. If nothing else, this should teach us not to ever put limits on God's saving grace. Well, that person is too corrupt. That person is too much of a militant atheist. That person is too sexually perverted. Too far gone. No. God delights to save the worst of sinners. He loves it as a showcase for the cross and of His eternal mercy which will redound forever and ever and ever and ever. As Paul puts it, the saying is trustworthy. And it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners of whom I, Paul, am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason. So that God would use me as an example. For this reason, so that in me, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to many more who will believe in Him for eternal life. Don't ever shortchange the grace and the mercy of God. And the third implication is this. As we look at this historical picture of our Savior having been treated so brutally by His people, by the Roman executioners and by mockers galore and then hear Him pray. Forgive them. We who believe should feel our need to forgive and pray for those who have not to that degree sinned, hurt, harmed, wronged us. Our sin, sin of every human being I know, would have caused our mouths not to be quiet, but to spew out curse words, threats against those who spat in our face, took the stick out of our hand, pounded the thorns into our scalp, and pinned us with six-inch spikes to a piece of wood. But our model was without bitterness toward those who did this to Him. And because of that, He's saving people. And He causes them to be born again because the light shone on their sin and it shone on the truth of the Gospel in their heart. And therefore the Apostle Peter can exhort all believers this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21-23. For to this 
You have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He hung there, He was reviled. He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That means, if we're a believer, we can entrust all of our relationships, and particularly those relationships with other humans who have harmed us physically or emotionally or slanderously. We can entrust all those relationships into the hands of a just and holy God. And when some of those people get in touch with how they sinned against us and ask us to forgive them, then we can with jubilation say, yes! Absolutely! Yes! To the glory of my Lord Jesus Christ. We must be a people who are looking for opportunities to forgive real sin against us just as Jesus has forgiven us. We can leave it into the judgment of God's hands. Whether that sin against us will be judged in the picture we saw this morning of the cross, or whether that sin will be judged without the cross, the great white throne. He will be just. Trust Him. We must follow Jesus' example. And His clear command from Luke 6. But I say to you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Let me just slowly close here then with this. The Lord Jesus says to everybody who looks upon the cross, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, My Lordship upon you, 
and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is it that any of us children of God's wrath sinful creatures could ever obey that command and come to Him? Because as He hung there, He verbalized what the hanging there was doing. Father, forgive them. Forgive them in their darkened ignorance. And those people So over the next few minutes as we are passing out the bread and the cup to all who are baptized believers in here, this is a time again to examine our hearts. We don't examine our hearts to look and say, how good did I do this week? How worthy am I? That would be to deny what we saw on the cross. It is to examine at this point is there unconfessed sin that is in my consciousness right now. And then, as we heard read earlier in 1 John 1 9, He is faithful. He's righteous. He'll never deny what Christ did on the cross. He's righteous to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are examining, am I holding grudges? Am I holding on to something that belongs to God? Is my heart saying, I don't believe God, you really will take care of this in a right way. It is a time as the music plays, to examine our hearts and to release those who we think or who have actually harmed us. So remember as Jesus hangs here, it was only 14 hours or less earlier where He said, This bread is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood.